Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back. If you're fasting, I hope you're having an easy fast. The throwback episode for today is Shidduchim Comedy Special for Perm with Dr. Leslie Ginsbar-Klarn. One more thing I wanted to say before we start this episode. There's this word that will be coming up. The word is exegesis. I did not know what that word meant before our guest brought it up. So I'll just give you a heads up. She does explain it in the episode, but it has nothing to do with Jesus or Christianity. It just means taking the meaning of the text literally without any commentary. So I'll just spare you all the thinking. One more thing, the Mishnah Nas Adar collapse song with 12 vocalists is out now. The link is in the show notes. I hope you enjoy and spread the word. Kol Isha. Hope you have a beautiful Purim. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, France Dance. Today with us, we have Tasha Kaminsky from St. Louis. We're so excited to have you on. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Francesca. You are the Perm Prom Queen on Twitter, <laughs> and you are our Perm Special episode. So... Could we start off by, usually I ask our guests to share a little bit about their professional and religious background, and then remind me, I want to ask you about how you chose Prom prom Queen as your Twitter handle. But yeah, let's start at the beginning. Sure. My background religiously is that I was raised in the conservative Masorti movement. I attended synagogue every single week and religious school twice a week. In addition to that, I attended Camp Ramada Rome in Georgia, and I also attended Ramah's boarding school in Jerusalem. After that, I went on to attend Florida State University, where I double majored in creative writing and religion. My religion major focused on Hebrew Bible. After that, I attended Brandeis and received a master's in Near Eastern and Judaic Studies. Now, I volunteer frequently for the Jewish community in St. Louis. I've co-founded two Jewish nonprofits. One is called Ashrenu, and it is an independent egalitarian minion that gathers in the city of St. Louis proper. And I also co-founded Matovu, which is a community space located in St. Louis city proper, where we offer Jewish programming and satellite programming to make Judaism more accessible to people living in the city. That's awesome. And thank you for sharing your bio. It integrates really your religious and professional background together most of the time. They're separate for many people. So that's cool. Okay, tell us about your your Twitter handle. So my current Twitter handle slash Twitter bio proclaims the Purim Queen. Mostly I just liked the alliteration, but I also, someone, the person who is at the handle Maimonides Nuts on Twitter, who is really brilliant and makes these awesome Jewish designs for clothes, mugs, anything you could want. She just is really thoughtful creator of Jewish art that's both funny and engaging. She had asked something along the lines of, were you like a Shabbat girl? Were you a Yom Kippur girl? What kind of girl were you? And I told her I was a perm palm queen and it stuck. Got it. So it's it's not just a Twitter handle for now for perm time. It, it's always. It's I'm always a perm palm queen. Yes. Nice. Okay. So you're perfect for this episode. 
Okay, so the reason I invited you on is because, and shout out to Danielle Bloom, Dr. Danielle Bloom, my aunt, who is actually, an episode with her is coming out soon. She sent me your tweet because I was speaking to her about wanting to find somebody to come onto the show to talk about perm and, you know, the sad or realities of the fantasized Queen Esther that every little girl wants to dress up as which is great for kids, but now that we're adults, let's talk about some of the harsher realities that were going on and understanding and recognizing that it's through the lens of, yes, we are modern women today, and back then women may have had different roles, and we understand that we're talking about ancient times. Okay, let me find that tweet and read it, or do you want to comment? So I think that... Someone really wisely put that the way that I'm examining Torah and Tanakh is through the lens of trauma-informed exegesis. And I thought that was a really appropriate terminology for how I like to approach text, in particular, the Megillah, which, which essentially means that I'm looking at the text and trying to approach it from an unbiased standpoint and understand just just the facts of what the text is saying and using a lens of trauma-informed circumspection, which means that I'm trying to make sure that I'm keeping in mind what aspects of this text would probably activate some people based on their experiences and addressing those experiences head-on. It's through the lens of somebody who may be triggered by the text if they're reading the text directly without any commentary. Exactly. Okay. So here's the tweet. Esther is a trafficking victim. She's taken from her home, rounded up in the center of Susa, and then put into harem. Esther to Perek Bez Pazakhes. While there is a tradition that a beauty contest was held and she was personally selected to be queen, that is not what the text says. Okay, and can I just say that growing up, I remember learning something about the text was they sent out right after the story happened. They wrote it up and they sent it to everybody. So think think Russia, think, you know, the Middle East. You can't just write whatever you want. It was a censored version of the story. That That's why you need the commentary, because Akashverosh couldn't look like a bad guy in the story, even if he... If we think about him now, oh, he wanted to kill a Jews. He was so suitable. Let's take it away. Every year I try to do some interaction with the text. I take the commandment to read Megillah Esther very seriously. I love hearing the Megillah read. And Purim has always been my favorite holiday in the Jewish tradition. So this year I decided to really focus on Esther's experience and start reading carefully for Esther's how Esther is navigating this experience for herself and what the story of Quorum says about Esther. And right off the bat, you start to learn that there is a culture being built up in the kingdoms of Persia and Medea, which is what the text says that Ahasuerus rules over. And immediately following Whatever the complication between Ahasuerus and Queen Vashti, we start to see that 
the entire kingdom and all of its provinces start to panic. The text is pretty explicit that a lot of men get together and start fearing about the implications of Vashti not coming when she is summoned by the king. However, we really don't have any information from the text directly about why Vashti did not come. I know there's so many different traditions about why Vashti did not come when she was called, including that the king was drunk and that he was asking her to appear in a compromised position, perhaps. But the text itself is not very clear. All it says is that Vashti did not come when she was called. And the reaction seems quite explosive and incendiary, given the initial incident. What ultimately ends up happening is the leaders and advisors of King Ahasuerus talk him into passing some very restrictive guidelines throughout the entire kingdom, saying that women should be subservient to men because they fear that women will start getting ideas because of Queen Vashti's non-cooperation with King Ahasuerus. And I think it's important that we consider what the setup is leading to Esther and her own captivity in the harem. Essentially, the laws passed and the rulings decreed say that women must be obedient to their husbands in their home and furthermore, that they should not be talking out of turn. So that's sort of laying the the new regime, the, the new order of things that Esther is born into, presumably. And then from there, when you look into Esther 2 and we start seeing how the king goes about replacing Queen Vashti, it becomes apparent that when you really look at the text, it's not that tradition of that, you know, we're taught when we're little that there was a beauty contest held and Esther was the most beautiful and therefore she became queen. And I know there's lots of other media and veggie tales and other tellings of this story where they really sanitize the text. But what the text says is that Ahasuerus commands for all the beautiful virgins, young virgins, to be rounded up in his kingdom and brought under the harem. That's a very violent narrative if you think about it, especially from the point of view of Esther, who we know is an orphan. She's living with Mordecai. She is taken from her home and put into a harem. And then it goes on to discuss that what will happen to these young virgins in this harem is that they will be put under cosmetic treatments and guidance from King Ahasuerus's preferred eunuchs who oversee this harem. There are two harems, it's clarified. One is for virgins, one is for non-virgins. The second harem is really the concubine harem. I did a really close reading of this particular book, Esther 2, and it became abundantly clear to me that not only was Esther taken from her home against her will, she didn't have a say. There was a royal decree that all the young virgins that were beautiful be rounded up, and Esther was among them. She was placed in a harem. She had to wait for her turn to be called to King Ahasuerus, where ultimately he would sleep with her. She did not get a say as to whether that was going to happen or not. So I would say there's a lack of 
meaningful consent there. She has to consent. She doesn't have a choice as to whether she's going to consent or not. Because based on Esther 1, women don't get to say no to men anymore in this kingdom. If they're called, they must come where they can face dire consequences. That's the atmosphere under which Esther is living in captivity in a harem. She's waiting essentially to be raped by King Ahasuerus. When she is in the harem, it becomes apparent that Esther is a planner and a survivor. The text is scant on details, but what it does share is that Esther particularly goes about ingratiating herself to the right people, taking as much advice as possible, endearing herself to the eunuch that's in charge of her well-being, and she finds a way to rise through the harem to being one of the most preferred guests in the harem. Through that, she sets herself up for success. And I posit that if we're looking at this through the framework of a woman who's been trafficked, who's been stolen away, and is waiting for whether she's going to be discarded into a concubine harem or not, she's doing everything she can do, which isn't much, but she is doing as much as she can to not end up in the fate of being discarded into the concubine harem. And furthermore, we find out that those efforts do pay off. She does exactly what she's told to do by her advisors in the harem, and King Ahasuerus ends up delighting in her and placing the crown that once belonged to Vashti on her head. And what were the things that were advised to her? So she underwent several cosmetic treatments. She also became close to the eunuch who was in charge of the harem itself. Her strategy was to ingratiate herself to him, to ask him for advice, to follow his advice, to become friends with him, is what the text seems to indicate. And by doing this, she was setting herself up to receive even better information about how best to please King Ahasuerus. In fact, before she goes into King Ahasuerus, when it's finally her turn to spend the night with him, she asks, what should I bring? What should I do? You're allowed, according to the text, to bring whatever you wanted with. Now, we don't know what women decided to bring when they went to see him, but we do know that Esther specifically asks, what should I bring? Not... I'm going to bring this. What can I do to make sure that I am pleasing to the king? And that in itself is really disturbing to think about if you consider the overall atmosphere and details and the position that Esther is in. But it also says a lot about Esther's will to survive and will to thrive and to come out on top. Do you do any work with survivors or traffic victims? Do you have any personal connection to this issue specifically? Yes, I do. I am a survivor of domestic violence and rape. And I consider Esther to be a character or a historical figure or an ancestor with much wisdom and solace to give to me and to give to other survivors of sexual violence. Wow. I was not expecting that response, and I'm so sorry for what happened to you. It's you okay. Know, I do a series called No More Silence on this podcast where I interview survivors of abuse, and many of them do come on anonymously for many reasons. 
So I won't ask you any more questions unless you are comfortable with me going further with that. But we could move on to. Yeah, let's move on. Less general. Okay. So I'd like to hear more things that you found in the Megillah that are helpful or that I, I like to bring and learn a lot about what's ancient and modern and timeless. So that's the connection I'm trying to bridge. Sure. I think there are a lot of aspects of the story of Purim and in particular what's in the actual text of the book of Esther that can provide comfort to the reader and is indeed timeless. What I think about most are several incidences within the book, particularly the way that Esther approaches her own circumstance. Now, Esther herself has been ordered by Mordecai to not reveal that she is Jewish. It's explicitly said in the text that she refrains from doing so because she respects Mordecai as her father and that she had never disobeyed him growing up and she had no reason to disobey him now that she was in the circumstance that she was in. Esther has become accustomed to hiding this part of herself and it doesn't even get into the details of why Mordecai wanted her to hide her identity for what reason and she doesn't really question it at least on the text itself. What Esther does do is she continues to operate from this from sort of from the working point of somebody who is traumatized, stuck, captive, and is trying to survive. And survival is a timeless theme, especially for victims and survivors of sexual violence. What we start to see happen is I've posited based on my close reading of the Megillah, and you know, we can all do a close reading of the Megillah and come up with a million different ways to interpret it and to see it. But as a survivor, when I read the Megillah, I see Esther as somebody who is doing everything proactively to protect herself. She is following the rules. She's ingratiating herself to the people she needs to ingratiate herself to. She is very thoughtful about how to stay alive in this court. And we know this court is perilous because you can't even go to approach the king in his innermost sanctum without being immediately dispatched with. Yes, beheaded. Unless the king himself offers you mercy. When Esther realizes the position that her people are in, she becomes afraid to reveal herself. She's still thinking about her own survival. And I think that because of the lack of God in the Megillah, like God is not mentioned once in the Megillah, which I think is a very powerful, it's one of those those voids that draws attention to itself. It's kind of incredible that not once is God mentioned, which almost suggests that God is ever present. But for Esther, She's not calling on God. She's not thinking about God. She's thinking foremost about Mordecai, who she wants to save, of course. And she's also thinking about herself and how she's going to save herself. But what I find is really empowering and meaningful is the part of the Megillah where Mordecai says, you have a choice. You can save your people. You have the ability to do so. You can be brave. And go forward and take 
responsibility for the fellow Jews of the kingdom that you're living in. Or you can go ahead and hide and think that that will save you. You've been operating from this place of survival for so long. And if you continue to do so and to not step up to meet this moment, perhaps deliverance will come from another place. But it doesn't mean that you're going to be spared just because you kept quiet. And there's something really, really timeless about that message that just because you keep quiet and you don't cause any waves or speak up or say anything doesn't mean you're going to be saved. And I think a lot of survivors can relate to that message. And ultimately, what I think is really beautiful about what the book of Esther is saying to survivors is that it is possible that all of your life experiences and the cumulative suffering you've endured has led you to a place where you are able to best articulate the plight of your people, the plight of the people in your position. And if you don't leverage your ability to do so, someone else might end up doing it. But what will become of you? And what will happen to you? And how will you be able to live with yourself? And Mordecai suggests very roundaboutly without invoking the name of Hashem that Esther was predestined to be in this position, that she rose to this point, yes, through her cunning and through her ability to survive, but she's in the right place at the right time and currently holds the most power of any Jew in the entire kingdom. She's the one person who can say something. And I think there are a lot of survivors of domestic violence and trafficking and rape who are uniquely positioned to speak up. And we still see today that it's a hostile environment out there. It's just as hostile as it was in Persia at the time to speak up if you're a woman. You weren't supposed to speak if you were a woman. And Esther is going to speak not necessarily to her experience in the harem, as that's not going to ingratiate her to the king, and that's not her goal. Her goal is to save her people. What's really beautiful about the story of Purim is that Esther doesn't just, you know, go and plead for mercy. She goes in with a pretty complex plan, and she knows the king well enough to understand how best to meet his needs, to make sure that he's primed and ready to hear what she has to say because it's not going to be easy for him to hear. He's going to have to hear he messed up. But she's coming up with the most delicate, influential way to tell him that. And in doing so, she's reclaiming her agency. She's the one who is coming up with this plan to hold two banquets. She is the one who keeps making the king happier and happier. And it's not just, oh, he loves Esther. No, she's really working to make sure he sees her as a great queen who understands him. And none of this is being sorted out by Mordecai. This is all Esther's doing. And I think that there's a lot to be said for a woman in our Tanakh who is coming up with a plan to both subvert what is going to be a genocide and that she's finding her own voice and her own way 
of communicating with these men. That's powerful stuff that you're mentioning. A lot of the commentary I know where you're you're focusing on the textual, but a lot of the commentary is that Mordechai did have a lover relationship. I don't know how else to put a sexual relationship with Esther. And when Esther went willingly to Ahasuerus, she gave up that right, the halachic Jewish laws, the right to ever be with Mordechai again. Ultimately, she's self-sacrificing. On one hand, she might be killed for going on her own and initiating something with Ahasuerus. On the other hand, she's giving up a fairy tale ending with Mordechai. But the reality is she ends up as Queen Esther, not in the, the concubine Concubine. Harem. The concubine harem, thank you. And she does have a child or children. And we look at her sort of as this sad ending. So th- my question is, how is the story resolved? Is this a happy ending for her or the happiest of endings? And what are your thoughts on that? My friend Miriam, who does these awesome viral doff reactions. She's your friend? Yeah, she, yeah she's really, really great. And she made this such poignant point that Esther saves all of us. And then she has to go on living with her rapist. And no one saves Esther. I'd say if we're looking at it from the lens of trauma-informed exegesis, it is a sad ending for Esther. It's not necessarily fair. She doesn't, she gets riches, she gets comfort, she gets power. But is that really what Esther would want? Is that what any survivor would want after going through what she had gone through? Just to be stuck with this hapless man who almost killed her entire people, whom she kind of fears. She worries that he's going to kill her. And that doesn't isn't that stop. Any gold digger. <laughs> potentially any any woman who says you know what i'll marry this guy he's 30 years older than me but he's a millionaire or billionaire whatever it is and i'll have babies this way he's stuck paying my bills and the baby's bills for the rest of his life or everyone's life and and women do choose that kind of life all the time i'm not saying it's correct or not but can this be viewed through a lens of you know she's hooked up she's the queen she has access to whatever she wants she's the most powerful woman and okay, she's not attracted to her husband. So what? There are plenty of women out there who seem to be very happy with such a deal. I would say that ultimately, the kind of relationship you're describing was still predicated on the woman having a choice. They had the choice and they decided to do that, whether it was for survival, whether it was to better their circumstances, whether it was just to make sure that their life was stable. They had a choice. Esther never had a choice. So this is more compared to somebody who's being married off to somebody. He's well off. He's a lot older, but he's established. He'll take care of you. Marry this man. Because this happens everywhere all the time, every day. Not in every culture, but very common. Yeah. And we know from the text itself that Esther was simply rounded up with a bunch of other women. She was taken from her home. She's young. She's an orphan. She's waiting around for King Ahasuerus to take her into his bed. She doesn't get a say. And she doesn't get a say as to whether she's going to be queen. We don't really know what Esther wants. Except to survive. That seems very clear to me. That Esther wants to survive. 
She doesn't want to die. She doesn't want whatever happened to Boshti to happen to her. And she doesn't want whatever happens to these other women who get placed into the second harem for concubines to happen to her. But aside from that, I don't think we can necessarily say with any certainty that this is a happy ending for Esther. And I really am stuck on what Miriam said about how Esther saves us all, but no one saves Esther and there is no exit for Esther. She's stuck. She doesn't have a choice. I am of the school of thought where I don't censor or I censor at the most minimum when I explain things to my kids. So when we view the Parm story through the adult lens and we understand what actually happened versus how it's so fantasized and how our kids are so excited to dress up as Queen Esther or even Queen Vashti, your handle is Parm Prom Queen. So there is this fantasy around it. Do we want to change anything about it? Or this is the way it is. You have the kids version. And then when you grow up, you learn the adult version. That's a really good question. And I'm not sure what the answer is. I think that there is in the text a very fairy tale like undertone happening. And I was just reviewing Esther 6, the first several verses. I think they're 1 through 11. They're quite comedic, actually. It's right after Haman has decided to build a 50-cubit-large gallow to hang Mordecai on, and he's going to see the king to ask for permission to kill Mordecai on it. Like, the very next day, the king says, I'm so glad you're here. I have a question for you. What should be done for a man who the king wants to honor greatly? And Haman assumes, oh, this is going to be about me. It's late at night. Haman thinks that he's about to get great news. And the king just goes, okay, I want you to go do that for Mordecai right now. And he had just been planning to murder Mordecai in a deeply public way. And instead, he has to go out and honor Mordecai. And I think that... In a public way. In a public way. And when we look at this text, there, there's a lot of, of flipping on its head. A lot of things happening where... Something goofy is going on or something almost over the top. There, that's, that is Purim itself as a holiday is there's a lot of switching and there's a lot of deception and there's a lot of you thought one thing was going to happen and another thing is going to happen. There's a certain joy and levity to those themes that are going throughout the Megillah. We also have the imperative, the, the mitzvot, that this is supposed to be a day of joy. It says directly in the text that we're supposed to be joyful and that the Jews do rejoice. There are different ways that we can go about encountering the culture of Purim, that it's grown to be, what it has grown over history to mean to us, which is celebration, survival, partying, giving to the poor, mishloach manot. These are all really lovely, positive attributes and parts of the story that are right there in the text. So worthy of teaching to our children, especially from a young age. And there are some nuances there too. I think it really depends on where you're coming from, from how you're going to examine the text. Whether we want to keep the status quo, so to speak, just the superficial parts of 
Purim is a happy holiday. We're going to be happy. We're going to celebrate. We're going to dress up. There is room for people who are ready. And there seems to be a lot of people ready to have this conversation to make space in our synagogues, in our shuls, in our temples, to talk about the story of Esther with that trauma-informed exegesis line. Where the Jesus part bothers me so much. Exegesis. 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 All it means is that instead of looking, we're looking strictly at the, what the text is saying and just drawing out from the text what is happening, as opposed to reading into the text and saying, making assumptions. Critical explanation of interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. Were there any other thoughts? The one other thing that I'd like to bring up is that there are so many attributes we assign to Esther that make her a wonderful Jewish role model, especially to Jewish women. She's strong. She's intelligent. She's a survivor. She's brave. She's so brave, especially everything she's been through and everything she's been threatened with. She still rises to the occasion. And she does this based on what we're seeing in the text, not because she thinks that Hashem is looking down on her and watching her or that there's even a plan for her. She just knows that her people need to be saved. I think a lot of people, Jewish people, reading this text today can relate to that narrative of, I don't know why this is happening to our people and I don't know why the political circumstances of the world today feel so hostile and scary but it could come down to just one individual person doing what is right. And that's at the real piece of the meaning of Purim, is that one person can change everything. And it goes back to the same teaching that if you save one life, it's as if you've saved the world. Thank you so much for doing this. I just have a follow-up question for you. And it's on the, let's keep it light. <laughs> I'm not asking too deep, but I'm curious what you think of Orthodox people. Do you have any interaction with them with your work or is are you completely separate in St. Louis? So actually, my mother's entire family is from. They attend Young Israel. I have much family in Israel, Palestine, uh, many who have made Aliyah, both sides of my family. My parents decided to raise me conservative, even though they came from Orthodox backgrounds. I deeply love my Orthodox family, and they have been integral parts of my life, and therefore my bat mitzvah, therefore my my marriage, my wedding. I have regular interactions. One of my closest friends is Maharat Rory Pickerniece. She's a Maharat. She's she's living an Orthodox life, and my interaction with Orthodox Jews have been going on my entire life, and I consider it part of my upbringing and my education as well. I know that we're approaching tradition, textual tradition differently, and I'm okay with that. It's okay for us to look at texts differently. That's kind of how Judaism is. That's what Talmud is. It's people looking at the text and picking it apart and trying to find meaning in it. And just because one person settled on a interpretation or a tradition that's different than mine, it doesn't bother me. I think that's the beauty of Judaism, that 
that we have this tapestry of understanding, but ultimately, when it comes down to it, my from family is still my family, and I love them, and they're Jewish, and they see me as Jewish. Thank you for giving some context. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this episode. I really appreciate you saying yes on, you know, on a whim right away. I really Uh, appreciate it. It brings new dynamic colors to the story. And hopefully this is something new for our guests to explore. I'm going to release this on the fast day or maybe even on Sunday. So we'll see when this is ready to go out. Well, thank you so much for having me and letting me have this conversation with you. It was really meaningful to me. Such a pleasure to meet you. If there's anything I can do to support your podcast later on, just let me know. Thank you so much. That's so kind. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Either way, I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to join the WhatsApp discussion group. Please keep the conversations related to the topics on the podcast as possible. Or if things do go off topic, try to keep them brief. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback. I love connecting with you. And the link for the throwback episode is in the show notes. Have a great Purim. Purim.